Dogmatically Imperfect explores what happens to us when our reality does not match our dogma. Warning. The following is a theological reasoning that has not been endorsed by any religious organization, mainstream or otherwise. The views expressed are sure to threaten certain sectors of organized religion. Rest assured, God is not threatened by this reasoning, nor is God angry with the person expressing or hearing this reasoning. Since God has not given you a spirit of fear, do not let fear hinder or scare you who are made in the image and likeness of God from hearing. Trust the Holy Spirit to identify and highlight the thoughts in this podcast that are in agreement with God's thoughts and allow these thoughts to resonate deep within your soul. Purpose in your heart that all thoughts contrary to the example of Christ, as confirmed by the Holy Spirit in your heart, will be separated and cast aside to be burned. Hello. You have found Dogmatically Imperfect. This is the very first episode more like an introductory episode of season one of the very first season of this brand new podcast. My name is Justin Marson, and I'm your host. Someone said, oh, I get it, dogmatically imperfect, kind of like Bill Maher's show. Well, you know, honestly, I couldn't tell you. I've never really actually watched his show. I've gone through several show titles, and I thought I had it. I was going to go with That Christian Guy podcast or, you know, Justin Marson needs an audience, or Captain Obvious needs a ship, but I, I finally figured out the name of the show, Dogmatically Imperfect. For a long time, I've been really trying to figure out what format this production is even going to be. I'm starting with next to zero audience. I mean, my wife and my three adult children, I'm pretty sure they're going to tune in. My mom, I think so. Um, I think I'll have some other family members and a couple of friends, but other than that, I mean, I've been off social media for years now, so I really have like zero audience, and that's not a complaint. It just means I've been extremely successful at staying secluded, (laughs) but it makes me wonder what my show is going to be like. I listen to Conan's podcast, and he really cracks me up, and when I I listen to him, I'm like, well, maybe I'll do something like that, something like what he does, but there's a couple problems with that. First off, Conan has honed his skill for decades at this point, and he makes it look so easy. Nobody just jumps in on Conan's level. Not to mention, I don't have you know any sidekicks or anybody to bounce stuff off of or, or guests to interview. Also, not to mention, I'm not really in comedy or show business. So that's not really my format. You know, Maybe I'll see what I can do. Maybe I can get some guests along the way or something like that. Don't worry if you don't get my humor right away. I've always said, you have to sit through all my bad jokes to get to my good ones. Well, let the waiting begin. <laughs> anyway, for the longest time, I thought I was going to have like a teaching type of a show because that's kind of what I do. But I don't know, maybe some of that. But I'll t- let me tell you a quick story. My mentor started a production some time ago, and they were quite well known in their circle, but had taken somewhat of a step back in their career path. And everybody had been waiting on their next season. And after five years of waiting, they started their production. And they had a following in the thousands. And they all tuned in to week one. And after about three weeks, three weeks, if it even took that long, the message was so unexpected that the audience dropped to probably less than 50. And a while back, I thought to myself, you know, they had an audience to lose and they still went for it. Nobody knows me. Nobody knows me. I have no following to lose. And I'm still sitting here on the bench. 
So I took the steps to prepare for this production, and really, I have all I need. I have the people who have been with me through thick and thin, and if they have my back, then I'm going to put my brand out there and my thoughts into the ether and, uh, you know, see what happens. I've literally got nothing to lose. So two questions right up front I had to ask myself. The second question is, what's my show about? And the number one most important question, who's my audience? The answer to number two, dogma dogmatically imperfect, is going to take a serious look at our belief system and see if there's any areas we could say, you know, have a clearer picture. And the answer to number one, who's my audience, my content will be relevant to people who have thought like me and people who can't quite reconcile their beliefs with their, you know, with their reality and they're inclined to try and get, like I said, a clearer picture. So if you're like me and you're interested in getting an ever-increasing clarity of how God looks at the crown jewel of creation, humanity, then this show is for you. And along the way, we're going to have some laughs and tackle some uncomfortable subjects and, any, and, and some ideas uh, with the aim to always find the divine perspective and the divine view uh, and view them, view the things from that vantage point. A little bit about myself as I'm stumbling here. I'm married to my wonderful wife, Jessica. Uh, we have four precious children of whom we are extremely proud. I'm a huge fan of the Washington Huskies, the Seattle Seahawks, but most importantly, the Mariners. Yes, we ended the drought after more than two decades. Don't remind me. Okay, so I'm a PK. And for those of you who don't know the lingo, Christianese, PK is short for pastor's kid or preacher's kid. Um, I grew up in the evangelical church, and it's from this perspective that you will best understand this journey. I've also been in media production for over 25 years. Man, that sounds crazy to think that it's been that long. Now, if you've not been steeped in the doctrines of the evangelical church, don't fret, it's not too late. There's still a good chance that you can avoid hell. <laughs> Let's hold off or anything like that for now. Okay, um, you know, I remember I must have been three or four years old, and my dad was pastoring in the Idaho Panhandle. It was his first church, and we were moving to a, from Idaho to a little town called Cleelum, Washington, where he was about to begin pastoring his second church. And this is in the late 70s, and we had a black and white cat who I named, of course, Sylvester. Suffering thuckatash, you know, the whole thing. Anyway, we had everything and everyone packed in the big U-Haul. Uh, now, in today's U-Haul, it would take less than five hours to get to Cleelum from Idaho. Uh, you guys have seen the way the U-Hauls drive today. They don't exactly drive like a Prius, I'll tell you that much. I mean, they're flying down the road pulling a trailer at 80 miles an hour. I mean, it's incredible. But back in the late 70s, U-Haul, they'd be breaking the laws of physics to keep up with a Prius. And they were loud and stinky, the kind of environment that cats like Sylvester detest with the passion of a cat in a room full of rocking chairs, as the saying goes. Well, we were a couple of hours into our epic journey, and my dad had to pull to the side of the highway, probably because U-Haul was going up a mountain and overheating. You know, and as soon as my dad opened the door, that cat pshew, shot out the door like sea biscuit, and just like that, little four-year-old Justin's cat was gone. We stuck around calling out Sylvester, Sylvester. 
you know, until the truck cooled off. And then dad, you know, said, get back in the car. And, and we had to leave Sylvester behind. And as you can imagine, four-year-old Justin was absolutely heartbroken for the first time in his life. And after a couple days in Cleelum, because we made it, of course, and we unpacked and we were doing the whole thing, I was still devastated and missing my cat. And my mom came in my room where I was laying down on my bed, holding in my sadness. You know, I was uh, whimpering and sad and the whole thing. I mean, you know how four-year-olds get. And she asked me what was wrong, and I burst into tears again. I miss Sylvester. Well, she wiped my tears and consoled me like any loving mother. And she said these two words. Let's pray. And she prayed that wherever Sylvester was, that he'd be safe. And asked the Lord that, uh, you know, he would keep his hand on Sylvester. And I piped up and I said, and Lord, help Sylvester to come home. In Jesus' name, amen. Just like a little kid would do. And not two minutes later, I know you think I'm making this up, but I promise you I'm not. We heard, meow, meow, meow. And we opened the front door, a place that my cat had never been. I mean, we lived hours and hours in the opposite direction. And on our porch was Sylvester. And that was my introduction to answered prayer. And from that moment on, I had an expectation deep in my heart when I prayed. This miracle was the foundation of my belief system that was born out of a pure connection with God and nurtured by my upbringing in the scriptures in every situation. By the time I was 20 years old, I had moved 21 times with my parents from one church to the next, uh, from Idaho to Washington to Oregon, back to Washington, and then to several places in Northern California. And many times over the years, my, ex my expectations were confirmed. I was now a young man. It was shortly before I married my wife. My parents had moved back to Oregon from California, and I was staying with my future brother-in-law. And this was my first time attending a church that was not my dad's. I had always been, you know, wherever my dad was, was pastoring, that's where I attended. And, you know, it was somewhat different. I was listening a little bit more intently because, you know, it wasn't my dad talking. Well, we were in the middle of, I don't think we really called them revivals anymore, but we weren't really calling them a summer conference or anything like that either. And for those of you who are unfamiliar, uh, you know, like a camp meeting or revival, it's a series of church services through the week with different special guest speakers. And they're talking about, uh, generally there's one specific theme and one person ha has to share, wants to share this. And they, each person shares something a little bit different about a particular theme. And one late afternoon prior to the evening service, Jessica discovered a significant bump right below, uh, right below her bottom left rib. I mean, it, it was it was significant. It was about the size of a golf ball, and it was scary. But I knew what to do. I was raised to know what to do. I put my hand on that bump, and I prayed. And one of the things I had learned uh, from the scripture over the years is to remember the times when God answered prayer and reference those events when you pray. It's kind of a reminder to God, not that he really uh, forgets anything, 
but it puts the person praying in a posture of faith. And I don't specifically recall referencing um, when Sylvester came home, but like I said, there were many other such occurrences that had continued to build my faith throughout my life. Again, I was raised to know what to do. So I laid hands on Jessica and we prayed. And while I was praying with my hand on that bump, and I wasn't pressing at all, I just had my, my hand on the bump, but I wasn't like pressing. I just had it on there. But I felt that golf ball sized bump dissolve in a matter of seconds. I had never experienced anything like that in my life, and it was powerful. And our prayers went from faith and petition to worship and thanksgiving with tears and amazement. Make no mistake, this was not me. It was God. And my faith continued to grow. When we got married, Jessica and I had no specific plans for how many children we wanted. I think our, our little saying was four or more, I think is what we said way back then. Uh, but we did know we wanted a boy and a girl, at least one of each. Our firstborn came after two years of marriage, a boy, 10 pounds, six ounces. We were going to name him Ouch. <laughs> um, I mean, it's like he was born two months old, is what I used to say all the time. We named him Justice. Our next child didn't arrive until four years later, another boy, Jonas. Our third, our third was right on the heels of the second, 13 months behind. We thought this might be our daughter, but one night, early in Jessica's pregnancy, we were at church and a guest speaker called out, uh, called Jessica out at the end of the Wednesday night service, like in the altar uh, time, right before, and this is before we had told anybody we were expecting. And from the stage, he pointed to Jessica and said, you're pregnant right now, aren't you? And she nodded, you know, and he continued, you know, this child is another boy. I know you want to have a daughter, but he's got a special anointing. And the Lord says, I know your heart's desire and your daughter is coming, but not yet. Lift your hand, sister. And with that, he laid his hand on her head and Jessica dropped, slain in the spirit. Now, his due date was very close to my birthday, and due to the prior two C-sections that Jessica had, <coughs> pardon me, we were scheduling the day that he would be born. And I really wanted him to be born on my birthday, but the doctor didn't want to schedule the procedure on his day off. So two days after my birthday, Jariah was born. And this left our daughter, and it was another four years. For our first two kids, we wanted to be surprised when the kids were born, so we didn't really find out if it was a boy or a girl. With our third, God kind of took the surprise out of it. And I'm going to get a drink here. <coughs> Pardon me. Thank you for your grace. Like I said, with, with our third um, child, God kind of took the surprise out, so uh, we went ahead and, and uh, confirmed it with a sonogram, and no surprise, God knew it was a boy. <laughs> um, and if you remember, the prophet declared, your daughter is coming. Uh, but we didn't know if number four was going to be the charm, so to speak. So again, we confirmed with the sonogram, and sure enough, our daughter was on her way. As a special bonus, she was due around the same time as my birthday. Once again. <clears throat> and this time, 
my birthday didn't fall on the doctor's day off. See, 2007 and 1974. <coughs> if you subtract those, 2000 minus 1974, what do you get? 33. That's the age when Jesus rose from the dead. And guess what? That's the age that I turned on the day of my daughter's birth, Sarah Corinne, my promised one. She had three older brothers to protect her. What could be more perfect? Thank you, God. And by the time she was born, we had a baby behind the driver's seat for nine years straight. And I drove everywhere. And there was a baby behind me, behind the driver's seat, for nine years straight so I could take him inside. And now it was Sarah's turn to sit behind me. And she was perfect. She was brilliant and starting to walk and, and talk before she was nine months old. The jewel of my heart. But the events of August 16, 2008, changed all of our lives forever. It was a Saturday, and we attended the memorial of a friend of the family. And after the memorial, we were pulling into our driveway, and I told Jessica that as soon as we got home, I needed to go inside and use the restroom. Now, she heard me, but she didn't understand. She didn't understand that what I was saying was that I wasn't going to bring Sarah inside because I was probably going to be a while and I needed to go now. And after I was done, I went into my office and hopped on the computer because I was editing my first big video project for my very first video client and my deadline was fast approaching. But Jessica didn't realize that I didn't bring Sarah inside. And I didn't realize that Jessica didn't bring her inside either. We both thought the other had brought her inside from the van and put her down for a nap. Three hours later, we realized what happened. And we raced outside. And there was Sarah, sitting in the van in her car seat, the place we put her to keep her safe. She had this far-off look in her eyes and she was breathing short, shallow breaths. She was hot and sweating. We rushed her inside and we called 911. We wrapped her in a wet towel to begin cooling her off and I had this overwhelming thought come over me. My shock was turning to tears as I thought. I can't believe she's going to die in my arms. Jessica could see it all over me and she arrested the thought. And with authority, she looked at me and said, no, she will live and not die. She was air flighted to Children's Hospital in Oakland. And we had to go down and interview with the police. And after they let us go, we made the one hour trip in 30 minutes. The doctors finally had a meeting with us. By this time, my, my parents had made it to Oakland from Oregon. Um, Jessica's parents were with us. And just the day prior, we had become members at a new church and called our pastor 
and he was there. We called everyone we knew. The people we knew called everyone they knew. And they all prayed. I mean, we were told that word had reached Joyce Meyer and and she had stopped the conference where she was preaching and they were all praying. And me, I was trained my whole life to know what to do. I recalled every miracle, big and small. I reminded God of every time he'd heard my prayers. I referenced every scripture because in that meeting with the doctors, they explained that Sarah's liver had shut down. Her kidneys had shut down. She'd suffered brain damage in her frontal lobe. And they told us she had three days to live. And sometime after that, we were finally allowed to see her. Her body was swollen to where she didn't even look like the same person. The doctor was doing her best to prepare us for her death. And I'll never forget, I told the doctor, with all due respect, I know you're an expert in your field, but I'm an expert in mine. My entire life I've been trained and passed nearly every test, but this time I'd drawn every lesson. I let nobody in who didn't pray for complete recovery. I played music that declared the healing power of God, not just in my surroundings, but in Sarah's hospital room, and even with earbuds on her kidneys. The music played, and it played, and it looped over and over and over. I had no time and no room for despair. I only had room for faith and expectation that she would be walking and talking before they released her from the hospital. And the first thing that happened is that she made it to day four. The miracle was in progress. They told us that if her kidneys didn't begin working soon, that they're going to have to begin dialysis. I mean, they were giving her Lasix and all the stuff, right, to make her kidneys work. And that night we were praying, and her kidneys began to work. And as the days went by, her liver began working. Now, it had almost been one month in the hospital, and she was being fed uh, with an NG tube, and this is the tube that goes in your nose and, and, and down into your stomach. This is the way that they were, uh, you know, they weren't giving her an IV or anything like that because they were trying to get rid of the fluids. But by this point, she was awake and making noises and looking at us, and she'd still not undergone any surgical procedures, but the doctors wanted to put what they call a G-tube in her stomach instead of the NG-tube. They wanted a more permanent solution um, to make it easier to give her food. And the the G-tube requires a surgical procedure to put the tube, I mean, they like cut a hole in your stomach and they, they just put it there and there's a little valve that you can open and close to dump the food in. And, you know, to make it easier to give her food. But we didn't want to interfere with the healing process that God was doing by putting her under anesthesia and actually cutting her open and doing those types of things. You know, her brain had not fully recovered yet. So we didn't want to put her under. So we declined that procedure. And the next day, 
Sarah Kern was discharged from the hospital, and we brought her home. And believe it or not, this caught us off guard. Remember, our expectation was that, you know, she'd be talking and walking the same way that she was before. This is, look, complete recovery, right? Um, and that's what we expected before she was released. But guess what? You know, we were happy just the same to watch all this stuff take place at home. We were fine with that. And I don't really know how to continue the story from there. So many things happened at the hospital to even make it possible for her to come home. It was a miracle that she, that we were able to bring her home. Because uh, shortly after we got home, because there was an investigation going on and everything from the first time when we talked to the police. And short after, short, shortly after we got home, the police came and they actually arrested Jessica, my wife, and she was facing nine years in prison. We had a CPS case opened and, you know, after a long series of events, the CPS case was closed and the charges were dropped. It was over a year before the charges were dropped. That's how long that, that this strung out. But, you know, along the way, Sarah began eating food and was able to come off the NG tube. And by the way, we had to learn how to take those out and put them back in through, through each nostril. We had to learn how to do that. But her speech had not returned and she still couldn't walk or even crawl. And she couldn't talk either. But these did not deter my faith. She was home before her first birthday. I mean, she was nine months old when she went in the hospital. And she was home before her first birthday. And the miracle was still in progress. And after a year or two, her hips began to cause her a lot of pain. And it turns out that when you don't use your legs when you're developing as a baby and you don't use your legs to stand and walk and the tendons are not stretched out, they begin to hinder bone development. And the tendons were tight from never being stretched and her legs were, were pulling uh, across each other. <clears throat> they were never stretched and, and they were pulling her hips out of her sockets. She was in a lot of pain. And we went to get the x-rays and, I mean, I couldn't even look. It went contrary. First of all, it's, it's super painful and nobody wants to see their kid in pain like that. It's, it's heartbreaking. And it just went contrary to my expectation, you know? And the doctor wanted to schedule a surgery to repair both hips. One was worse than the other, but he wanted to repair them both so that, I mean, if, as long as we're in there, let's get them both done. It was so difficult, and I couldn't bring myself to agree. So I had Jessica give the consent because I couldn't do it. Let me get some more water. <coughs> it was definitely very difficult to go through. I mean, God had brought back Sarah from the brink of death. She was moments from dying. It went, one, of my, one of the things I really struggled with is, <clears throat> you know, because we felt like the Lord reminded us, hey, where's Sarah, right? <clears throat> and um, I'm trying to figure out if I should give you the analogy and I'll just give you the analogy because this is the way my mind works and you need to kind of get used to it. 
if you've ever watched that uh, movie Happy Gilmore, right? Um, it's just, he's at his first golf tournament, right? And he and he has to have a caddy, so he he gets this little kid, this you know young kid, off to the side to to uh, carry his golf clubs around for him. And he says, and, and he only gives him really one instruction: goes, "Hey man, make sure I don't do anything stupid, all right?" And he's like, "Okay, no problem." <laughs> and uh, they're the very first uh, tee. You can take the very first shot. And uh, he's like, all right, uh, the guy he's with, let's just call him Johnson. Johnson, it's your turn. And he's like, okay, go ahead. And he's standing like right there in the middle of the of the tee area, right, where, where you're going to take your shot. And uh, they say again, okay, well, it's his turn. He's like, okay, yeah, good luck, man. And then, and then they're like, you're in the way. <laughs> right and everybody the whole crowd's laughing right and uh and and happy gilmore turns to this kid that's his caddy and goes where were you on that one man you know uh <clears throat> and that's kind of the way i've you know look thanks for uh, thanks god for bringing this to our attention moments before she died but you know where were you when i first left the car right where were you on that one god and of course, I'm not really blaming God, but that's what goes through my head. You know, this is what I'm saying. It's one of the things that I struggled with. So, hey, you show up two minutes before she dies, but you didn't bother to let me know about it ahead of time. And of course, you know, look, well, maybe I wasn't listening or I wasn't tuned in or whatever, you know, all of those things. I get it, right? But I look, it's a little bit more important than, oh, you weren't listening. You know, hey, get my attention, right? So... Anyway, uh, <clears throat> I'm saying this is one of the things that I struggle with, right? But he brought, he, God brought her back from the brink of death, and he healed her kidneys, and he healed her liver, and he brought us out of legal trouble, but her brain was not yet healed. And now other things are breaking down as a result of her stunted cognitive growth, right? The reason her hips are coming out of socket is not because of the, not because, you know, the tendons. It's because her brain did not know how to tell her body to walk, right? Her brain was the cause of her hips coming out of socket and the tendons to be tight. Her brain was the cause of that. And you know, surely God isn't going to stop short of full recovery. When do we ever see that in scripture? You know, I, I'm, I'm going to heal you halfway. It just doesn't, you don't see that anywhere, right? Well, the, the surgery was scheduled and on the day, right up until they finally put her anesthesia, right? I'm I'm sitting there in the room, and they got her on her on her bed, and they're they're getting ready to to put her under and go take her in for the surgery. I still fully expected fully expected. And the best way to describe my expectation and my experience is this. When you go sit down on a chair, the act of sitting down is your faith that that chair is going to hold your butt up off the ground. Does that make sense? You know, in the same way that I expect a chair to hold me up, the one I'm sitting in right now, I expect God to complete the work of full recovery because he promises healing in his word. And he promised to me personally in my mind and because of my belief in his word. And his promises. You know, why bother to take the stripes if you're not going to get the job done? Right? So, because he took the stripes, 
then I believe. So, no different than when I'm sitting on this chair and it's holding me up off the ground. I believe. But the reality of this upcoming surgery doesn't reconcile with anything I was taught, or anything I believe, or anything I've experienced based on those teachings and those beliefs. And this is where my dogmatic imperfections first showed up, but I didn't even realize it. When they were about to put her anesthesia, uh, anesthesia, when they were about to put her under anesthesia, my daughter was looking up at me and smiling with purity and innocence. And tears began to stream down my face. Not only had I failed her to begin with, but now my faith was failing her all over again. And it was more than I could bear. And I wept as I left her bedside before she went to sleep. And I found a secluded corner of the waiting room and for the first time, I sat stunned, not knowing what to do. And I wept again. Over the years, she needed more surgeries first to take the pins out of her reconstructed hips, and then spine surgery to correct the scoliosis she had developed because she doesn't cognitively know how to use her muscles to even sit up straight. Every day that went by became a mockery of my faith. And I began to slowly withdraw from everything and everyone. I could not reconcile the reality of our situation with my expectation of God that my religious upbringing had given me. So I unconsciously began to strip down to the core of my faith. I had to find out why things weren't adding up. It was painful and lonely. Because how do you even do that? This is not what we're trained to do. We're not trained to scrutinize. We're not taught to believe. I mean, we're taught to believe and trust even when we don't understand. Because, you know, God's ways are higher than my ways. You know, I knew better, the, better than most people the way that one scripture tied in with another. I had a pretty good understanding. In fact, I had very good understanding. And I realized that God is sovereign, but you know, that's not really a reason for him to act contrary to the promises he made in the scriptures, is it? It hasn't been easy. My entire identity was in turmoil. I mean, not only were we all dealing with the physical challenges of a special needs little girl, growing up because that's challenging all by itself but you throw on top of that um, dealing with with trying to reconcile this the identity of who you are who you grew up to be you know the cat came back the the bump went down everything in between right 
This series, Dogmatically Imperfect, is the result of that process of finding the core of my faith and looking at the things that have been brought to my attention along the way. And what I'm finding is that my dogma was indeed imperfect. And I don't claim that it's perfect now. Don't get me wrong. Don't, don't, do not think that I think that I know what I'm talking about now. Don't think that I have it all figured out. I don't. But my attitude is rooted in the belief that God is going to take me as far as I can see. And when I get there, I'll be able to see further. And what I see now is vastly gooder than the understanding, the understanding that I previously had. And the expectations that I was given have been replaced with something that is really hard to explain. If I had to describe it, I would say a curious anticipation of the goodness of God. So I want to invite you to let me share with you the things that have been brought to my attention and what has given me this curious anticipation. What I've found resonates with the deepest part of who I am, the part that was created in the image and likeness of God. And yes, there are difficult thoughts that I had to wrestle with, and you will too. But the journey is worth the effort. Thanks for sticking around to the end of this introductory episode. I invite you to listen to episode 001 of Dogmatically Imperfect. The title of the very first, I mean, the, the first official episode, this is kind of an introductory, but the title is Discarded Doctrines of Jesus. And if you're anything like me, it's going to jack you up and rotate your tires. Thanks for watching. We'll see you soon. Dogmatically Imperfect with Justin Marson is a production of Original Goodness Media. Thanks to everyone who supports this podcast. If you want to become a supporter of the podcast, there are a couple ways to do that. If you want to support us financially, you can go to the website, originalgoodness.media. The other way to support the show is to share it with others directly or by leaving a review. If you have thoughts or questions that you would like to share, please send an email to yabut at originalgoodness.media. That's Y-E-A-H. B-U-T at originalgoodness.media. Make sure to search for the show on your favorite podcast and social media platforms. Special thanks to The Real Night Terror for our theme music. See you next time.